There we go. We're in a week five of Courageous Conversations. We ain't done yet. We got a few more weeks to go. And in one of these weeks, our very own Dr. Jimmy Stewart is going to deliver a sermon in this series. I'm really looking forward to that. I'm going to be on the front row for that. I don't know why y'all don't come to the front row. We know revival is going to be breakout if somebody's on the front row here at Fondren Church. That's the, it's that way uh, at every church. Well, today we're going to look at is God anti-sex? Is God against sex? If you're in the room and you got little ones, it may be time to depart with them if you want to. This will be PG-13. We have an outstanding kids ministry down the hallway. I wouldn't leave if I had one uh, with me uh, today. I think they can hear it all. Uh, but again, it's PG-13, so you be the uh, determinant of that. If your kids are 13 and older, uh, they'll probably teach you some things about what you heard uh, in the sermon today, to be honest with you. Uh, so we'll give you a moment if you need to, uh, to, to do that. Uh, I don't think you'll be mad at me, but uh, you determine if it's what's best for you and your family and your uh, situation. want to make sure we speak the truth in, in love uh, today in this regard. Uh, we uh, all, at a very, very early age, come to terms with the reality of our sexuality. Uh, a, a mom is bathing her two-year-old son, and he uh, says... He, as he points to his ear, mommy, what's, what's this? She says, well, that's your ear. What's this? That, that's your eye. What's this? That's your chin. What's this? That's your chest. Mommy, uh, what's this? Well, that's your belly button, silly. He points further south. Mommy, what's this? Mommy passes out cold on the bathroom floor. By the time we're in seventh and eighth grade, uh, we are engaging in locker room talk. Uh, this is the first generation in the history of the world that uh, were children have been exposed to sexually graphic images, all sexually graphic images imaginable. How do you talk about sex? Do you stay in the room? Do you go? Are you going to be mad at me today? Are you going to cringe? Are you going to blush? Hey, preacher, when I'm talking to my kids about sex, do I use clinical language? Do I use medical terms? Do I use slang or euphemism? Do I use kitty language? Do I talk about wee-wees and tatas? And in the scripture, let me just be clear, God doesn't use clinical terms. There, there's references to anatomical parts. He doesn't use clinical language or medical terms or slang or euphemism or kitty language, but he uses beautiful, descriptive, poetic language to talk about this very important subject. And so today we're going to answer the question, is God anti-sex? And I think this short sermon could be on the shorter side. So some of you will love me for that today, but no guarantees. I mean, there's a clock, but I barely watch it. Y'all know that. I want to, in fact, I want to look at your faces today as I preach this. I'm going to make five points to answer the question, is God uh, anti-sex? So if the first one uh, is this, sex from the beginning is a gift from God. You know, this question is, it, we're going to talk about sex, right? We're going to talk about sex, but sex is never about sex. Uh, think about, uh, there's so many examples, there's oh, so many, but just think about marriage counseling. When someone comes to see a marriage counselor, they'll, uh, I know from a pastoral standpoint, they'll say something like, you know, we're fighting about boom. And it could be something as silly as the toilet paper or the toothpaste. We're fighting about money. We're fighting about communicating. We're fighting about the in-laws. We're fighting about money and budget and, and vacation. We're fighting about these things. But it's rarely about that. It's about more about resentment over the long term, an erosion of trust, something more fundamental about that. And when we're talking about our sexuality, 
man, this bears uh, saying, it bears repeating, that this gets to our very view of the nature of God. So is God good? Remember Bruce Almighty? Remember Jim Carrey and Bruce Almighty? And there's that one scene, there's so many, but there's that one scene where he's, he's mad at God. He's trying to figure him out. And he's, he's just mad at God. He's driving across the bridge and he's had a calamity befall him one turn after the other. He's on the bridge and he just has a breakdown. He gets out of the car and it's raining. Anybody remember that? I would show it, but didn't have time to cue the track. But Jim Carrey just shouts at God. And he says, smite me, almighty smiter. You remember that scene? And some of us have that view of God. Maybe we've never thrown our fist up like that. Never, maybe we've never used the word smite me, oh thou mighty smiter. But we feel like God's against us. We feel like God is not for us. We feel like God doesn't have our good in mind. What kind of view do you have of God? Because I'm asking, answering the question, is God anti-sex? And the very first point that I'm making is from the beginning, sex from the beginning is a gift from God. It's a wonderful gift from God, but some don't see, some don't see God as good. Uh, we think he's mean and critical, he's distant, and uh, maybe he's judgmental toward us. There's a reference in business and insurance. Some of you know this, uh, but in insurance, when there's a, a destructive act, a flood or an earthquake or a tornado or a hurricane, what do we call it in the insurance world? We say it's a, an act of God. Y'all have heard of that? It's an act of God. I wonder how God feels about that. Like, you know, there are other natural occurrences like tropical breezes and sunsets, but we only refer to destructive acts as acts of God. What view do we have of God? Emma Goldman, who's memorialized at Cal Berkeley, said this about the Christian faith. Christianity is the leveler of the human race, the breaker of man's will to dare and to do, an iron net, a straitjacket, which does not let him expand or grow. What is your view of God? Is this what your religion leads to? If you're exploring Christianity, but you're concerned about what Scripture teaches about sexuality, is this your fear? That it would be an iron net, that it would be a straitjacket, that you're, it would break, you would level the human race, and it doesn't allow men to dare, men and women to dare and to do, to expand and to grow. Is that your view? In fact, all the commands, if you see God as restrictive, if you, if you see them as he's restricting you arbitrarily, then you're going to have a hard time with this. But what if what you think, hey, culture, what if what we think is restrictive is actually what would bring us freedom? What if this is highly countercultural, unpopular? I know I'm about to get really unpopular. But what if it's counter, highly countercultural to what the culture teaches us, but freedom that we run after, that we celebrate, is not actually freedom, but it's the very thing that's restricting us? What's the first command? Anybody know? What's the first command that God gives the human race in the Bible? Genesis chapter 1. Let's look at it. He says this. God blessed them. This is a good God. This isn't God the smiter. This is God who's angry and judgmental. He's blessed them and he said to them. And real quick, let me stop. Because we don't do this enough. Because we're not that type of church. And I preach against prosperity theology. But let me just stop real quick and say. And I promise to make this a shorter sermon. But God wants to bless you. God wants to bless. 
He, he wants to build. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to bless the world. He wants to bless you. Would you be open to the blessing that God has in your life? He is a good God, and he is for you. God blessed from the very beginning, before sin entered. You know we're going to get there, but before sin entered, God blessed them. And he said, be fruitful, and most versions say, be fruitful and multiply. Increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. That's far from an iron net. That's far from a straitjacket. Are you with me? God, the first commandment, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. I've got some friends on 30A doing that right now. And over every living creature that moves on the ground, rule and subdue and have dominion and exercise and fill the earth. The first commandment of God, I want you to be clear, this could shape your view of God. The first commandment of God was not read your Bible a lot or affirm a certain set of beliefs. The first commandment of God was don't go sinning all day. The first commandment of God was be fruitful and multiply. Now, let me ask you, church, without blushing, what activity is involved if we're going to fulfill that? Say it. Sex. sex. Lots of sex. And he says, be fruitful and, thank you, be fr- a guy on the worship team, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, he gave that command to two people. The earth is 24,000 miles in circumference. And today we boast almost 8 billion people and counting. They say by 2024, we'll be over the 8 billion mark. He gave that command to two people. And wasn't God good to give this command and he made it delightful. He made it to be an enjoyable and a good thing. The first command, God says, was to be fruitful and multiply. I almost wanted to say the first command was have sex, but you wouldn't let me say that because you would resist me with your religiosity. The second command God gives is found in Genesis. It's found later and it says this, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly Die. Now, we always focus on the second part of that, but, and we'll get there, but focus on the first part for a second. And the Lord God commanded them, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. What was the first commandment? Sex. What's the second commandment? Are you with me? Should this affect our view of God at all? I'm just saying sex and food right off the top. Okay, God is good and God is not anti-sex. In fact, sex from the, what's point number one? Sex from the beginning is a wonderful gift from God. But notice what happens. Because you know the points are going to change in just a second. But notice what happens. He gives a command that would lead to sin. And in the third chapter, verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any, notice the language, every word. More, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say You must not eat from any tree in the garden. And by the way, did God say that? Do you see the other verse? Gina, can we go back to chapter two? Now the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That ain't what God said. Genesis chapter three and verse one. Go forward if you would. Did the Lord, did God say you must not eat from any? He didn't say that. And by the way, here is a fundamental component of everybody's sin in the room fundamental to our humanity is this if you're going to sin you're going to need to rationalize to sin you must rationalize and to rationalize you must misrepresent and ultimately distrust what God has said what God has said that's a part of every sin 
rationalize it so you can justify it later, so you can get away with it, so you can assuage the guilt in your conscience. And all of our sin, all of it, look, we're, we're going to get there, but we're all broken. We're all broken in this area. It's part of it to doubt what God really said. So just real quick, from the very beginning, God is good and he gives good gifts. And we come along, it's our sin that busts it up, that breaks it wide open. And then we're a bunch of people running around misrepresenting what God really said. And we rationalize and we doubt. So God gives us these really wonderful gifts, including in it is the gift of sex. But point number two Here it comes. Distortion of the gift is destructive. And by the way, let me me go back to the goodness of the gift. Maybe this sermon won't be that short. Song of Solomon, chapter 7. This is the man to the wife. Let's do it. I said I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. Apparently, men and women took God's message seriously. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breast be like clusters of grape on the vine, the fragrances of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. May the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. My favorite part of that is teeth, actually. Some of you can't get past the palm trees and such. That was the man to the woman. This is the woman uh, to the man. I belong to my beloved and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. Y'all, look at me. Y'all can figure this out. Really, you, you can. It's not as complicated as you think. I mean, there's metaphor, but it's pointing to some very literal stuff. This is just like this is in the Bible, and it is to be celebrated. It is to be celebrated as a good gift from God. Now, let's go to the distortion side. It's point two. Distortion of the gift is uh, it's destructive. One out of six of us is walking around with a sexually transmitted disease. Children have a hard time growing up because of the abuse that's been perpetrated toward them by an abuser or by pornography or by mixed messages. Jesus would speak about this very thing, about the distortion of it. By the time we get to the New Testament, uh, we see how sin had crept in thousands and thousands of years later. Um, in this passage, Matthew chapter 5, that I want to get you to turn to, um, Matthew 5, we'll have it on the screen, but you have Bibles in front of you, you brought one today, I'm, I want to do better at honoring the, those who bring your Bibles to, to church, to worship. But in Matthew 5, we'll look at a, a pretty famous passage and try to get a fresh look at it, what he's teaching. But this um, Atlantic Monthly did an article um, year before last in 2020 a survey that revealed that um, 96% of the top 174 songs on the Billboard chart had references to sexuality. Katy Perry has sung, I don't even know your name. It doesn't matter. You're part of my experimental game. Ariana Grande sings, I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it. I've told some young adults at our church recently, y'all, what y'all need is less Cardi B and some more Run DMC. 
Our songs aren't getting any healthier through the years. Now, that's my era. Ario Speedwagon, Run DMC, Reba McIntyre, okay? That's just, that's where I'm, some of y'all feel me uh, in this. But we live in a sex-infused, sex-saturated society, and so little of it is bringing health into our, into our beings, into our families, into our souls. And there's so little uh, romantic expression like this, like you see in the Song of Solomon, like God intends between man and wife. In Matthew chapter 5, here's what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said. Now, he's getting on to the religious people. And let me say this today. Uh, every time we hit a sermon like this, man, we don't sit on a lofty perch. We're not looking down and pointing fingers and condemning anyone. I mentioned it last week when we talked about hypocrisy. Uh, Jesus is speaking to us, and he's actually bringing judgment against religious people who were looking down on others because of the brokenness of their sexuality. And they got religion, righteousness, uh, really wrong, really messed up. Can I just say, let's don't do that. Like, let's don't be that. So we got to be careful that our hearts aren't filled with fear about the culture we live in or filled with hate toward people who are struggling, who are different than us, because we're all broken in this area. I'll finish what Jesus said. You have heard that it was said, you shall Shall not commit adultery. These were men who knew the law. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Are you kidding me, Jesus? What, what are you saying here? Certainly he's not condemning a glance at an attractive woman and acknowledging that she's beautiful. That's not a sin. It's the lust. It's the ongoingness of it. It's when lust takes root in your heart and bears fruit in your life and blocks intimacy and separates you from God. That's what he's referring to. But these were people who thought, hey, I'm not doing these outward acts. And by the way, at the time, very oppressive patriarchal society that we don't live in today. But in that world, for a woman to leave her house in Jerusalem, she would leave her home wearing two veils over her face and ribbons and all to make sure uh, that none of her features were being seen. So Jesus would say this, and actually he's using humor, even though humor is lost in translation in our day. He would say this, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. What Jesus is saying here, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that self-mutilation is a proper strategy for sin management. He's not saying that. And I don't think anybody's going to go and do that or would certainly believe that. But you can just study history and see in monasteries and different places in, in time, things like this, that there's people who struggle with the literal nature of this. And what Jesus is saying is he's upending what people think of righteousness and he's given common ground. Just because you haven't done these things doesn't mean that you're free. Doesn't mean that you should sit in judgment on other people. We're all broken. We're all flawed. We're all damaged in this area. We all need to be very, very careful in this area. If um, talking about the distortion of sexuality, sex from the beginning is a wonderful gift from God, but this gift is distorted and it, it's destructive as it's distorted. A few questions for the home team today. If sex is just a physical act, why is rape so much more psychologically damaging 
than other forms of physical violence. If sex is just physical, why is rape abuse reported far less than other forms of physical abuse? If sex is just physical, why is childhood abuse, why does it carry over in long into adulthood? And it's so much different than this authority figure just let me down. If sex is just physical, why is it so difficult to recover from adultery? If sex is just physical, why is it a big source of our regrets, our baggage, our shame, and our trauma? If it's just physical, the scripture would say in first Corinthians six, and some of us think that our sexuality and the infusion of sexuality, the lyrics from Katy Perry or Ariana Grande or Cardi B or whoever is like some new thing. Let me just tell you, no, 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 no. Study the history of Corinth. Uh, there was uh, prostitutes were in the, in the whole Mediterranean world. Prostitutes were referred as Corinthian girls. Any, any woman that was promiscuous referred to as a Corinthian girl. They were so, there were so many, uh, avenues of worship in Corinth, one in particular on the outskirts of town where a temple was built for the goddess Epaphrodite, the goddess of sex, love, and fertility. And there was sexual prostitution. There was worship there. By the way, Corinth was run by a city of elitist. There was elitism ran rampant in Corinth where just a few, does this sound familiar, where just a few minority people who were in the elite structures thought they could think for everybody. Just a few people had infiltrated the important parts of the country, and they thought that they could impose their way and will on everybody. Uh, imagine that. And that, that, was, that was Corinth. And Paul would later write to them. He had to handle church discipline in this area. We've had to do it here. It matters. It's important. We don't, we don't, we don't cover up. We confess he handled something serious because it was destroying the church. And just like last week when we talked about hypocrisy, there are some things that matter, and this matters. Our integrity matters. God desires wholeness. And he can take broken people. He can take this good gift that's been distorted, and he can bring integrity, and he can bring wholeness and grace. That'll be the last point. You probably know that already. But he would say to us, flee sexual immorality. How do we define sexual immorality? Let me be really clear. Sexual immorality is defined by sex outside of marriage. And he says, flee sexual immorality. I'm not so popular anymore, am I? Preaching this, not so popular. And Paul would say, flee it. You know, some temptation can be withstood. Some temptation can be guarded against. Some temptation you can endure. But sexual temptation, you must flee. Can I just say to everyone in the room, as your pastor, if I am, if you're a visitor here and just listening, you probably aren't going to come back next week, but uh, just hear me out on this. I want to challenge everybody to flee pornography, to flee pornography. Three lies that we're tempted to believe. First of all, that pornography is victimless. Here's what you get in pornography. In pornography, you get an airbrushed woman who is probably struggling with an eating disorder, drug addiction, horrible abuse, and likely sex trafficking. And I'm just dropping hardcore facts on you. If anybody's already pointed the finger at me being a backwoods religious bigot or hate-filled monger, 
preaching religious stuff, and I, I'm just dropping hardcore facts on you. Pornography is not victimless. Airbrushed women struggling with eating disorders, drug addiction, horrible abuse from her background, and likely sexual trafficking. Secondly, a lie of pornography is it rewires your brain. It rewires your brain to think differently about women. How do you think differently about women if pornography is your jam? You see women, let's be clear, you see women as objects. You begin to see all women as objects. This begins to affect you. I have friends, I deal with it a little bit, but I have friends who are counselors. They're telling me, hey, pastor, this thing is big. This is a huge deal. And it matters. It matters to Jesus how we esteem and affirm and value women. That's central to being a man of God. The, another lie is that not only rewires your brain, it retrains your appetites. It gives you a longing for more. And there's that longing of diminishing returns where your life will become about the satisfaction of your bodily appetites. Men, remember when we looked a couple of weeks ago about does Christianity oppress women? And we looked at 1 Corinthians 7 that tells us that men are the glory of God. And you knew this was coming. I told a group of men on Friday in this Samson study, but men, you're the glory of God. You're not an animal. You have the glory of God stamped in you. Let's begin to live like it. I want to get one amen today, just one, somewhere along the way. I'm going to put this quote up. I'm not directly quoting from anybody, but I'm directly quoting internally from too many men today. We've been dating for four months months now I've earned the right to take and use your body for my pleasure of course I'll leave you in another few months because I'll become bored with your body and I don't want to have to deal with you as a human you know your emotions and moods and opinions and ideas at the core sex is about a relationship and it's a part of it it's an important part of it but this is the result of the distortion of sexuality in our day, true back then, true in our day, maybe more ubiquitous because of the tools at our disposal, the tools that block intimacy, the tools of access that we have that can rewire our brain and retrain our appetites. So the third point about our sexuality is unbridled sexual pleasures require some boundaries. Unbridled sexual pleasures require some boundaries. Uh, what is the boundary? According to scripture, you take it or leave it. You call it restrictive or you call it freeing, but what is the boundary? The boundary is marriage. The boundary is a man and a woman according to the scripture. Let's say it's a cold day, so you'll really have to use your imagination here. It's a really cold day and it's like 15 degrees outside. We hadn't had one of those in a while, but it's 15 degrees and we're playing on the playground and somebody tells you, uh, not, they wouldn't tell me I'm too smart, but they tell you, hey, go put your tongue on that frozen flagpole. Drink a little bit of water, you know, get it, get it salivated and go put your tongue on that. And then we all, the bell rings and we all go inside. We kind of want to go inside because it's 15 degrees outside. We want to get in the classroom. We don't want to be at recess, but you're, what's going to happen there? You're going to leave, a, if you're not careful, you're going to leave a part of you on the playground. You're going to leave a part of you on that flagpole. You're going to be stuck. A part of you is going to be stuck. And every single time, 
my wife and I, who's at the beach this weekend, my wife and I, we talk to a young lady in particular about sexuality and we'll say to her, has sex outside of marriage, has promiscuous sex, has it made your life better or has it made your life more complicated? We have never gotten answer A ever. Never once have we gotten answer A. Always, 100% of the time, and some of you, many of you can testify, it has made your life more complicated because sex is never about body to body. Oh, it involves that, but it's never about just that. It's soul to soul. You leave a part of yourself with someone when you have sex with them. There's no way you would say amen in church, but some of you know what I'm talking about. You leave a part of it. You don't need a Bible verse for that. Look at me. You don't need a Bible verse for that. God designs this gift to be fulfilled, and I'm going to go back to creation between a man and a wife. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. You see, this gift of sex was given for procreation. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But it was for our pleasure. Look at the Song of Solomon. Look at how Scripture celebrates the blessed, beautiful union between man and woman. Procreation, pleasure, but also a picture of Christ and the church. And in creation, God started, and he had all these opposite parents. Hear me. He had all these opposite parents. And we live in a culture that wants to silence this, talking about intolerance. We live in a culture where a small minority is trying to run everything and silence this. But when God created, he said, sun and moon, land and sea, day and night, earth and heaven, male and female, he intends it to be. And this is the gift that God gives and says, this is the way that you'll represent me in the world, in the world that needs this. The fourth thing that I'll say in answering the question, is God anti-sex? Recovery happens best in a healthy atmosphere. We say, why are you talking about recovery? Because of our fallenness. Because of our brokenness. Because of our confusion. This is the place. This is the place we should come. This is the place we should be. This is the place when someone asks, is FC for me? We can give an unequivocal yes to whoever and whatever your struggle is. Let me challenge those of you who are married. Singles, you're next. Married, let me hit you first. I want to challenge you to maintain a vibrant marriage. Take a fling with your husband. Chase each other and go on excursions and bring some fire, bring some heat to the marriage. Look at Proverbs 5. I'm going to throw it up. It says this, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. 
married people maintain a vibrant marriage. I love the story of the priest and the nun. They were traveling in a cold Montana uh, winter, and they were traveling, and their car broke down. No cell phones then. And their car broke down, and they found this rustic cabin, and they, they entered in, and they thought, well, this isn't right, but we're going to we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to be in this cabin tonight, and there's no heat and nothing running here. And so he's like, the priest said, well, you know, you, you take the cot. That's only right. You take the cot as, as the nun, as the woman. I'll take the sleeping bag on the floor. And they, they bedded down, and the priest and the nun, they were going to sleep, and the nun uh, said in much pain, she goes, Father, I'm cold. And he got up and got her an extra blanket. He found a blanket in the closet. He brought her a blanket to her and said, now, here you go. He got back in a sleeping bag. A few minutes later, she said, Father, I'm cold. I'm still cold. He got up and got another blanket and put it on top of her and thought that was it. And a few minutes later, she said, Father, I am still cold. The priest said, well, I'll tell you what. It's just me and you. Nobody's going to know. She said, I think I'd like that. He said, let's pretend like we're husband and wife. She goes, oh, yeah. He said, well, get up and get your own blanket. (laughs) Why is it? Why is it that marriage is seen that way? Why is it the ones we live closest to are the ones we take for granted? Can I challenge you to maintain a vibrant marriage and if it's lacking in zeal and you're losing the fervor would you get around people that can help you keep the zeal and keep it hot young women find a woman who can mentor you young men lock arms with some older men in Titus 2 may there there be more men and women my age and a little older that can look back and can coach and can help it's worth it Single people, you're loved and valued and honored in the Christian faith. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 would tell everyone who's married to keep their marriage going. And then he would tell single people that it is not, you are not to be debased. You are not of less value. Too often I'll hear that. Even recently I heard from a single friend, you know, I'm broken. I'm, I'm seen as less than. And what the scripture teaches is that sex is a gift in marriage and singleness is a gift in community. And both are to be mutually esteemed. You are valued and you are needed. And that is a cultural lie. It does not come from here. It does not come from here. Now, maybe some social pressure from mom and them in Mississippi. All right, but it does not come from here. You are valued and you are a gift in community and it is not seen as less than it actually can be seen as a gift and you can utilize that for a gift. But honor God, honor God in this area as well. The last thing that I would say, point number five, is imperfect people require grace. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In verse 10, Paul has listed some sins, particularly some sexual sins, not exclusively sexual sins. I don't know why we single them out and why we single out some of the sexual sins as greater than the other. The Bible doesn't do that. No, it does tell us that sex, when we commit a sexual sin, we sin against our own body. When you commit a sexual sin, you sin against God. You sin against the person that you've had sex with, and you sin against your own body. And we see the baggage and the scars and the wounds and the trauma that we carry because of that. But in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, 
after listing some sins, he says, and this is what some of you were. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If our team would begin to make their way up. What I love about the Scripture, this isn't some isolated thing. Nathan told David after his sexual sin, the Lord has taken away your sin. Jesus did not ever say, I have come to seek and save those who are perfect. What did he say? I have come to seek and save those who are lost. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus, against the religious leader's wishes, spent time there with that woman, that prostitute. And he told her, and she found out that her sins, all of her sins, were freely forgiven. In John chapter 8, the adulterous woman who the Pharisees put out in the center ring to make the center of attention, to make the object lesson her sin, she went away from Jesus uncondemned. So today, what's your area of busted upness and brokenness when it comes to this topic? It's a tough topic. I don't say that because some leave the room and some blush and not all agree with this. And I'm not here to be popular, by the way. It's a tough topic because it involves us. So if it's true in my study, my office, if it's true with my counselor friends, that there's no area of shame like this one. It's not often someone will come to me, Pastor, can we talk? I've got to talk. I've got to, I've got to admit something to you. I, I failed. You know, I cheated on a test. I didn't do my taxes. I, I mean, that, that doesn't happen as much as this. And this is the big one. So it affects us. We're all in this together. We're not any better than anybody else. So let me say this. God is ready to give everyone a fresh start. The question is, are you ready to receive it? And just a word. I feel compelled to say this to anybody here today. Who you didn't give away to somebody in this area. It was taken away. And you were violated by a trusted friend. By a person hope there's hope in Christ there's hope in a community of Christ loving and serving freedom comes from honesty acceptance and truth and that's what we're called to walk in single people honor God in this area married people maintain a vibrant marriage pursue that would you stand with me and let me pray over I'll preach a shorter sermon at the 11 o'clock. Father, thanks for this morning. And I pray that um, you would work in our midst. Thank you for these courageous conversations. And Lord, uh, I can't speak for every heart in here, but I just, I know a lot of us probably just need to confess that we have not done well as a church. Letting other people speak into this area been silence and the problem is not what we're doing today or the problem is that we haven't done it enough 
And I pray that it would be a, we would be a place and a people formed in Jesus where people could turn to for love and acceptance and truth. And God, this brings up things in people and I pray that you would help us in unity, in grace, in conversations that would bring healing and help. church is a place for some people it represents hurt wolves in sheep's clothing who've done damage a, a mess called purity culture that has uh, harmed people and it's given um, given us the wrong message and so today I pray that every open heart will receive this that sex from the beginning is a wonderful gift from you but it's in its place. It needs to be in its place. It needs to be surrendered to you and help us do that. In Jesus, we pray. God, bless these tithes and offerings as ushers make their way with baskets. Lord, would you allow this room to be a reflect your generosity? Would you move in us? And um, Lord, would you provoke us to love and good deeds, to think more and more about uh, giving you all of us, to giving you all of us, that we would have no area that we wouldn't turn over to you. And thank you for a generous people. God, we've asked it from the beginning that we would be a generous church, that money would flow in here and through us to people in need and that the gospel would be spread, that we would fight human trafficking, that we would restore families, that we would prevent a lot of the sin that we've even talked about today, that we would put resources to it. Bless us as a generous people. In Jesus, we pray.